Anyway, do you have something you want to add to that? Someone needs to strip you of your brain? Well, yeah, I just said something absolutely absurd that politicians need to make or should be making good decisions. What? That's not why they got elected. They got elected for hair or smiles or kissing babies. They excited their constituents. <laughs> yes. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Welcome again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. I said it as if boys and girls would dare, but they could be listening to this very exciting program. The Personal Wealth Coach, this is Jake McClure, and on the line with me I have... This is Jeff McClure, and you really need to learn how to say that correctly. What, what your name or... The gentlemen, boys and ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Oh, you want me to use the radio voice? Well, the that, fact that you like a like an old time radio announcer helps tremendously. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Personal Wealth Coach. Do you think it would attract boys and girls to our program to talk in radio voice all the time? Well, it attracted me when I was a boy. I think we have a different sample demographic audience when we're talking about children today. Just mm. just an opinion. Uh, that has not been tested uh, thoroughly in a lab. We need to get a government grant to, to test that. I believe that we could get several million dollars to test if a radio voice from the 1920s would attract... Oh, I'm 20s? Sorry. I'm sorry. 20. The 1820s. I'm, the eight, I'm not... What? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just being evil. <laughs> this is the personal wealth coach. This is Jake McClure. Jeff McClure is here with me. He's my dad, by the way, folks, and I have the utmost in respect for him. We've been working together for 30 years now, 30 years working with a family member with both of us. All of us still have our limbs attached. There's We're both alive, too. That's really impressive. Still alive. We have not maimed or mangled each other in any way, so that's that's kind of fun. Um this is the personal wealth coach. Uh, now it's time for our disclosures. Maybe the most exciting part of every episode is where we talk about the governmental authority that we fall under and the way we gather our information and whether or not we pay for stuff. Okay, here we go. The personal wealth coach is not just the name of a radio program and a podcast. It is also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that the SEC has given us any kind of a thumbs up, thumbs down. They don't approve anything. That's not their role. There are regulators. That means if you hear us say something that's dangerous to the public, they're the people to talk to. Also, that the SEC registered investment advisory firm the personal wealth coach generally offers, generally, it always offers fiduciary investment advice. But that's not what we're doing on this program. We can't offer fiduciary investment advice because fiduciary means that we've got to know you really, really well. And we need to put your interests not just ahead of our own, but have your sole interests in mind. That's a little different than the typical investment situation. We can't do that on the radio because we don't know you all. And even if we did know you all, this isn't group therapy. If we're giving one of you advice, it's probably not the right advice for other people. 
It's not group therapy? Well, maybe it is. Maybe it is maybe group therapy. Maybe it showed up at the wrong radio program. Yeah. Hi, my name is Jake. Hi, Jake. Um, so, uh, what are we doing if we're not offering investment advice on the air? We're offering education. We're going to help you by providing information that will make your decision-making hopefully easier and maybe even give you some decision tree concepts of how to think about making financial decisions. All right, that was a really long-winded disclosure. You get the next long-winded disclosure. Here you go. Yeah, this next one's important. The information we present on this radio program is educational, and it has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable and accurate. However, we make no guarantee or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. Uh, nor do we warranty or guarantee that we can say the word completeness on a regular basis. You got that. But you can't say warranty and guarantee on a regular basis, just not, say, not related to anything. I can say deem, warranty, and guarantee very consistent, very consistently. But it's not but, complete without completeness in it. Right. And I can also tell you that if you want to contact us while we're on the air and make a comment or ask a question or anything of that nature, you're certainly welcome to do so. And you can contact us either at either or both of two email addresses. One is Jeff at TPWC.com and the other one is Jake at TPWC.com. You can send to one or both and we will endeavor, see that's my word for the day, to answer your questions or address your comments on the air. And now on to what happened in the market this week. Something happened in the market? Uh, something happened on the way to the market. Yeah. Well, it was for, for geeks, market geeks like us, it was an interesting week. The S&P 500 stock index, uh, affectionately known as SPX, rose 2.64% for the week. Now, that was, it closed at 3943.34. Well, that was a pretty big jump, but it was an interesting jump to us who followed this type of thing because it didn't occur inside the market where it has traditionally been occurring inside the market. It was an interesting week, too, because Monday it looked like we were going into a tailspin because interest rates suddenly became centerpiece of stock traders' vision. And they said interest rates are going up, therefore the market's going to crash, and we'll talk about that later. And then on Thursday, it hit an all-time record high. The S&P 500 did, as did the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and slipped back a little bit on Friday. Now, but that wasn't simply a rise in the SPX. What's been happening all year, well, in, in 2020, basically starting about a year ago, or more than a year ago now, is there have been a few very large growth tech companies that have dominated the market, and the rise in the S&P 500 has been almost entirely driven by these huge companies that keep getting bigger as the market goes up. And that's reversed this year, and it's reversed a lot. For you can re, Those companies are sort of represented by the Russell 1000 Growth Index. It's up this year 0.4%. The large-cap growth stocks as a, as a group, now, what's large cap? That means there's the total value of all their stock on the market is very large. Growth means that they're, the price of that stock is based on hope for future earnings sometime down the road and hope for it like Tesla, which doesn't have much in the way of earnings, but has certainly got a lot of growth. And the reason why the growth is there is kind of universal. People expect them, the, the people that own them expect them 
to be worth more in the future because earnings will be higher in the future. That's what they're that's what they're making their estimate based on. Uh, historically, has not been a very good philosophy. But we'll see now. So if the growth index is only up zero point four percent for the year, and the SPX is up five percent for the year, where did the rest of the growth come from? Where did the rest of the increase in value came from? We have a, a, a preferred value indicator. It's called the CRSP, U.S. Mid-Cap Value Index. It rose 4.33% for the week, almost twice, not quite twice, what the, uh, what the S&P 500 rose. It closed at 2360.31. This is the important thing. Mid-Cap Value, which did very poorly during the 2020 calendar year and during the pandemic, the worst of the pandemic, uh, is up 15% year to date. I compared that again with the fact that the S&P 500 is up 5% year to date and the mid-cap value index, most of which are part of the S&P 500, are up 15% year to date. And you can see something odd is happening. The growth in the market, the growth in the index is largely being driven now by value stocks. Uh, the Russell 1000 value index, for example, is up 10% year to date. So we're doing, there's a huge turnover going on in the S&P 500 where the large cap tech companies that were leading the way are sagging or barely holding their own, whereas the smaller and more value-oriented companies are doing very, very well. Now, what's a value-oriented company? It's a company that basically already has the earnings, already has the assets. It's just the total value of its stock is worth less, generally speaking, than the breakup value of the company, which is tr the traditional place to invest money. And over very long periods of time, value stocks have outperformed growth stocks. Basically, by buying something that's worth, that is priced on the market at less than its intrinsic value, theoretically, you should be able to wait for the market to recognize the value in the company, sell it, and make a bigger gain than if you buy something that's already priced higher than its intrinsic value. That doesn't always work for short periods of time, but over the long period of time, academic studies have shown that it works. And, and, we, and we've got a lot more to talk about that coming up too, because that's one of the maybe most important fundamental aspects of understanding investment, uh, at least in my opinion. And uh, but we, you're not through with the market commentary or what's happened in the economy. Well, in the market, a big thing that's driving a lot of this opinion a lot of this turnover in the market are interest rates you know people don't file don't pay a lot of attention to interest rates until they go to refinance their home or something but at the beginning of the year the yield on the 10-year u.s treasury note which is the benchmark for the rest of the bond market stood at about 0.92 percent in other words if you bought a 10-year note you'd get less than one percent a year interest on it for the last per year for the next 10 years but it has risen 77% in 10 weeks. It says this, that's how long this year has been in place now. It closed at 1.625%. Now, that's not an unusually high rate. Matter of fact, it's low historically. It's right about where inflation has came in in the CPI this year, I mean, this, uh, this for last month. So it's up to 1.625%, a rise of 77%. Now, what's, what does that do to the market, which is a far more interest to people? Right. When we say the market, we're talking about the stock market right now. Stock market. Companies like Netflix and, and Amazon and a lot of other companies are expanding very, very rapidly. And that's their, where their hope comes from for higher earnings in the future, which is why their prices are so high. But they have to borrow large amounts of money to keep expanding. 
if interest rates go up, their expenses go up. So these large cap growth companies and even smaller cap growth companies that have to borrow a lot of money to grow are negatively affected. The price of the stock, generally speaking, is negatively affected by rising interest rates. On the other hand, value companies, for example, banks, that's a classic large cap value, tend to not need to borrow money. Why do they not need to borrow money? Well, because they already have plenty of money. They don't have a lot of debt on their books. They're the ones that are loaning money out. They're actually making more money with interest rates being higher. As interest rates go up, there's a greater demand for loan. That's why the interest rates go up. So as the greater demand for loans occurs, the banks can literally price what they loan up higher because there's a greater demand for it and look like they'll make more profit. So they've done very well. So there's a reversal going on in the market. Now, the interesting thing about this reversal as the interest rates rise. Historically, rising interest rates have triggered a bear market. But in this particular case, they're not, they do not appear to be triggering a bear market. They don't appear to be slowing the economy down. What's happening instead is we're getting this reversal in this market, this turnover. If you're a fisherman, you're familiar with the fact that lakes turn over a couple of times a year, where the cold, cool water on the bottom comes to the top and the warmer water on the bottom at the top goes down in the fall and then it reverses itself in the spring when the water begins to heat up near the top of the lake. So what's happening is we're getting a market turnover. The last time this happened, by the way, to the degree that we're seeing it right now is in 2001. It's the bear market that lasted from 2000 to 2002. We got into full, full swing. But we're not having a bear market. Matter of fact, there's no evidence of a bear market going on out there. And we, that, this is a fascinating area. Part of the reason why we look around and we see things that would normally trigger a bear market, or we're pointing at things and saying, whoa, that looks like a bubble. And we've been saying that quite a lot for the past several months. Whoa, look over there. That looks like a bubble. These things can last a long time. And we've got a scenario running right now that could make it a lot easier for them to last longer. There is just a phenomenal amount of cash sitting out in the economy right now. And we've talked about where it's come from. We talk about the the Federal Reserve is buying bonds on the open market. Well, that flushes cash into people's hands that held a bond before. Um, we've got stimulus, another stimulus coming out. So that's more cash coming in. There's a benefit to this in that without that cash stimulus, this would be a really protracted and deep recession, extremely. That stimulus is coming from... Hardship, though. The stimulus for from the government is taxpayer-related. That means we got to pay it back sometime. And the stimulus at the individual household level from themselves is because they're not going on vacation and they're not eating at restaurants. So they're able to stimulate their bank account to higher levels because they're not spending it on things that they would really generally usually rather spend it on. So we have this massive amount of cash sitting there. And a lot of people who have recently, over the last year, had more time to focus on things than is usual. A lot of people lost jobs. Even people with good jobs lost jobs. Sometimes they got them back relatively quickly, but allowed, allowed them to become interested in things like new technology to get into the market, either Robin Hood or older technologies that are new to them because they'd never had the chance, the time, or the money at the time to put it towards these, these outlooks. So there's a lot of money flushing into, get this, comic books, uh, collectible tennis shoes, 
cryptocurrencies, real estate. Non-fungibles. Non-fungibles. Uh, you've got uh, electronic things from the internet, memes, the right to say you own it. Huge amounts of money going into that. Well, where's all this money coming from? Well, we just said it. Bubbles pop when the money supply starts to shrink and people say, well, I'm going to sell this really fabulously appreciated asset that I got from the llama farm or the emu uh, egg hatchery or I got from the comic book store or from some coin exchange or all of these things that the reason why they go up in value is because of their collector's item. And I, I'm including cryptocurrency in that because well, a lot of people will say that's currency. You can use it to buy stuff. You really can't. Uh, you cannot pay your electric bill, your mortgage bill. Your, you can't do those things with cryptocurrencies. Uh, you may find a mortgage company that will take payments in cryptocurrency. I haven't been able to find one. I don't think so. You, you may find a local uh, food delivery service that takes cryptocurrency. Uh, don't think so, though. Uh, so the whole purpose behind it is no longer the purpose behind it. The reason why people are jumping into it is because it's going up and it's a collector's item. And they have some belief that for the reason why someone else will buy it from them for more money than they paid for. And that can work if you've got something that is truly scarce like uh, Michael Jordan's rookie cards. Well, those are truly scarce. Okay, you may make a profit doing that, but if you're just buying comic books or just buying Bitcoin or just buying cryptocurrency because it's doing well and you're not doing any research to back that up, that's the same as the emu and ostrich craze. It's the same as the tulip bubble from the Netherlands. It's the same as every other hugely euphoric uh, irrationally euphoric concepts that have led to bubbles and busts in the past. These bubbles may last longer, which may cause people that would not normally get involved in a bubble to get roped in. And those are usually the people that get burned the hardest, the ones that come late to the party. If this party's going long, there's going to be people that come late to the party that would never have gone to a party that get hurt by this. And that's just something to be aware of. Uh, it's rather important. We have some questions, though. We've, we've had some questions throughout the week, and we kind of answered some of them in that opening about the market, about what's the difference between value and growth, and why should the market go down when interest rates go up? Um, so you, you talked about value and growth. The idea of value is if you're used to the concept of a net worth, apply it to a company. What does it own? What are all its assets? Now, what are all its debts? Subtract the debts from the assets. You got a net worth. This is what the company is worth if it were an individual. Now, compare that to what the market is purchasing it for. Look at what the stock price is and multiplied by the number. That's called the market capitalization. If the market capitalization is right around or below the price of the net worth, that's a value stock. If it's significantly higher than that price, they are generally considered growth stocks. And growth stocks, we like to say this, that uh, people are, are betting on the long-term earnings potential of the, of the company. 
But a lot of times you get a stock that has no long-term earning potential that it becomes a growth stock because everybody thinks somehow if you buy it, it's going to go up. So this is GameStop, for instance. They really don't have any earnings. I think most growth stock is bought because somebody sees, quote, it's going up, so I'm going to buy it because when it goes up, I'll have more money. Right. So they don't actually even think about when they're going to sell it. They just buy it going up. That's true. And, and they trigger sale is triggered when it goes down. It's very much like, uh, in some ways, collectors of like comic books. Part of the reason why uh, comic book collections can be quite valuable is that people don't like to sell their comic book collections even when they get quite valuable. So that adds to some scarcity. Why don't they like to sell it? Because they like it. They like it because it's done well. It's very valuable. This one's better than that one. The, the internal con conflicts in the comic book are less important sometimes than the, the cover art or whatever's going on. They're looking at this comic book and saying, it's very valuable. It's done very well. And my question is, oh, when are you going to sell it? And they say, well, I'm not going to sell this. Same thing is true about gold and gold coins. People buy it theoretically to sell it when things get bad. But in my experience in working with people who actually have a collection of gold coins or gold in general, when they get the one of the main reasons they don't like to sell it is when they go to sell it, they are generally quite disappointed at the amount of money they get for it. Yeah, even though the projected value and the spot market value looks amazing. You know, I could sell this for this much money. When you actually go to a place that buys gold, you get significantly less than that because you don't have the uh, selling magnitude to sell on a big market. Now, there are some places you can go that get better prices than other, and that's true in any marketplace. And there's some value in arbitrage. That's the ability to find little inefficiencies and make money there. So if you look at the folks that wave the signs that say, we buy gold, how are they making a profit? I mean, if you're able to go to them and sell them gold and you get a big amount of money for it, how do they make money? Well, they're not going to give you a large amount of money for your gold. They're going to give you some money for your gold and then they're going to melt it down and sell it on to a market with a larger volume so they get a better price. And that's just the nature of the world. When it comes to Bitcoin, when it comes to uh, NFTs, when it comes to these so many new kinds of kind of digital stuff that people are saying this has collector's value. Maybe. <laughs> we'll see. Give it a few years. Give it a couple of decades to see if it has collector's value. Does that mean if you've got the opportunity to buy a cheap comic book, you shouldn't? No. If you enjoy comic books, buy a cheap comic book. Enjoy it. If you think it's going to be worth something, have fun doing that. I wouldn't base all your retirement dreams on it, though. And that's what I'm telling exactly the same thing about cryptocurrencies. So this is exactly the same thing about a whole series of areas where the, the lid on the price has suddenly popped off and prices are going up across it, all over the place. And people go, I want to be part of this. Just make sure and take profits when you have them. Make sure that you get your original money out and recognize that you could lose it all. Because tomorrow, maybe, and this is something that's fascinating. Baseball cards have a great, great piece on this. Some of the earliest baseball cards no longer have anywhere near the value that they did originally. 
because all the people that watched those baseball players play are dead now. Well, not all of them. Well, yeah, yeah. In some of the earliest, yeah, all of them are dead, or maybe all the collectors of them are dead. Right. Uh, which means that they hit the market again, and people aren't holding them because they collected them for a lifetime. And when they hit the market again, through inheritance usually, then the price drops. There's a fundamental rule in investing, a principle, I should say, in investing that works over the long term. Short term, it may appear not to be working, but over the long term, it's very consistent. And that is, if you buy something that creates utility, and it continues to create utility in, in the society or in the economy, it's going to be worth more than if you buy something that doesn't create utility. For example, when you buy a bar of gold, it's creating nothing. Matter of fact, if, you, if you're going to hang on to it and you're going to hang on to it safely, you either have to insure it or you have to store it someplace. And that costs money. And that costs money. So gold has a net cost to hold. So does almost anything else. If you buy something that, for instance, I'll just use, I'm not suggesting that you buy Procter & Gamble or, uh, or, or any of the other companies, but let's say you buy a company like Procter & Gamble that makes stuff that people use, that make their lives better, that makes diapers and things like that. That company has actual earnings. It's actually taking raw materials and converting them into something useful. And as a result, it's creating utility in society. And that's if you look at what Warren Buffett has bought over the years, everything he buys is something that's creating a better society, creating a more efficient economy. And as a result, his fund has done very, very well. Yeah, if you think of it this way, it'll, it may be quite helpful. I hear this so regularly that I think you could quote it along with you, with me. Uh, buying a car is the worst investment you can ever make, or you lose money as soon as you leave the, the dealership. You, you As soon as you drive off the lot, it's worth less than it was. And I'm going to come at you with a backwards to that. I think buying a car may be the best investment people can make if it allows them to get to work. That's the utility of it. Why else does everybody own a car if there's this universal belief that it's a bad investment? Because it's not a bad investment. It's a bad investment if the only thing you're using it for is to try to sell it for more than you made on it or more than you paid for it. But the reality is that there's people that do that too. Uh, I, I know people that go to car auctions and they buy them in one place and they take them to another place and they sell them. Car dealerships do this. They buy cars and they sell. That's an investment. If cars were a bad investment, no dealership would make money on them. If cars were a bad investment and everybody agreed, truly believed that these were bad decision making, you couldn't, you should not buy a car, then why is everybody driving cars? The same's true in the market. Sometimes what you're buying, whatever that may be, what a company is buying, doesn't look profitable. Why did they buy that thing, that piece of property that may be worth less in the future? Well, if they're using whatever it is that they bought to create the same kind of utility that driving to work does with a car, then it may be the most important piece of their business. So when you're looking at what's the utility of a gold bar? What's the utility of a Bitcoin? What actually can you do with it? What is it that would allow you to be more profitable or anybody else to be more profitable while using that item? And you can see pretty quickly, it's just the hope that somebody else will buy it from you for more money. It's not actually doing anything else. 
There's a name for that. It's called the greater fool theory. That's right. And I am a great proponent of the greater fool theory because I always think that, you know, whatever you make, you can never make something foolproof. And if it's foolproof to you, it means that there's a greater fool later on because you can never make it foolproof. Maybe so. But I have also been left holding the bag in this greater fool theory in lots of little items in my life saying, if somebody's going to come along and buy it off, oh, no, no, I was the greatest fool. That was me. So keep yep. that in mind. If, if you want to make a decision on whether or not it's a good idea to buy something, look at what's, what's the fundamental reason to do it. And if it's just that somebody else wants it more than me, then sell it to them. <laughs> yep. Thing is the news media. The news media tends to cover people who make a lot of money on weird investments. They don't tend to cover the news when people lose everything they invested in. For example, Game GameStop doubled, tripled, quadrupled, went up many, many times. It got up to four hundred and some dollars a share, and then it dropped back to a hundred dollars a share. And it talks about the people who bought in early at eighteen dollars or whatever and made it in and so and theoretically at least sold at four hundred some dollars a share. It doesn't talk about the people that bought it $200, $300, $400 a share, and then when it dropped back below that, are left holding the bag. Well, here's, here's something that, here's a great story on this. Um, this is from thestreet.com. This is from this week. GameStop short sellers are nursing $11 billion in losses this year. So these are the people that thought GameStop was going to go down. So they've lost $11 billion. So this is still the story about people losing money on GameStop by thinking GameStop was going to go down. It's unlikely that we'll hear the counter to this story. If they lost $11 billion, that means somebody, $11 billion was in the pool. When GameStop drops, notice I said when, because it's done it a lot. When it drops... There's at least $11 billion in additional losses that could go for the people that currently hold it. There's, you know, GameStop's just hired a new CEO. They're saying, hey, we're using this hype to make our company a better company. They still are full on having all the liabilities that they had before stuck in the mall. And a lot of people are saying, well, they're going to make it back up by selling uh, game stations. Playstations, uh, Nintendos, they're going to they're gonna make this up. I'm going to go way back. They're going to sell all these Ataris and, and am I dating myself? Just as a side note, I am a gamer, folks, so I, I actually know when I, my terminology is off. That, professional sports? No, not at all, but I understand gaming. <laughs> Very nerdly. As long as you're not using a dating service, I guess you're okay. You're not really dating yourself. Well, yeah, you're right. That, though that could be a quite cheap date. I would uh, not have to that. I have to start dating myself. Wow. I think my <laughs> wife won't even mind that much. Nope. <laughs> What's that? Particularly if you take her along on the date. Right. All right. Well, we have a question from our most faithful questioner, John. Uh, and John's talking about China. There's a copy or a picture of an article in the Wall Street Journal and uh, the question is, uh, China has a 100-year growth plan, and it's in its 14th five-year phase. It seems like the U.S. focuses on the next quarter to keep stock prices up to support 
CEO bonus plans, will this come back to bite us? Well, the answer to that question is yes. The answer is pretty simply yes. It's also that the Chinese plan is going to come back to bite them. There's no perfect way of planning. And planning strategically and then tactically is the correct approach. I mean, strategic is long-term. What's our long-term? And then the short-term is the tactical. Well, what do we need to do short-term to make sure we're staying up with our long-term plan? And, and John, I think you, you, you know the right questions to hit our, right at our points that we're like, oh, I don't like this about our, our existing system. There is way too much focus on quarterly earnings in the market. That's really bad for long-term planning. If you have a plan that includes a big new line of something you're going to sell and you're a publicly traded company and it's going to take some ramp up to get there, you may have to work for three years on this project before you make a profit on it your stock price is going to suffer because all those extra expenditures toward that project are cutting into your earnings and your earnings are measured quarterly. So there's this incentive from given by the shareholders to say, hey, why aren't you profitable now? Why aren't you more profitable now? I know you're going to say this three-year thing, but I want some money back now. You add to that the incentives that are given to the executives and the employees of the firm that are in stock options. Well, stock options for the CEO bonus plans, so this is where I'm saying it's right and wrong, can be longer term. And those are the best ones, the ones that have vesting that goes out four, five, eight, ten years. That means that they're more incentivized to make long-term good decisions rather than the short-term stuff. And we were talking about this question before we got on the air and talking about how we have a big chunk of our economy devoted to quarterly stuff and a big chunk of our political system devoted to every two years. And it makes it difficult to pass things like big infrastructure plans because you're going to take on a lot of debt that gets paid off over a long period of time. And you're not even going to see the benefit of all that debt, the road construction and the dam construction and the bridge building and, and all that good stuff during your two years that you're in office. You may get run out of town before they even cut dirt on all this debt you just acquired. So there's kind of an incentive not to make good long-term decisions, except that if you look at how often incumbents get reelected I think they're just too too focused in on that concept because they're generally going to get reelected. They should just make good decisions long term. But now I'm saying that politicians should make good decisions. Somebody needs to strip me of my brain. That's an impossibility. Or at least only luck lets that happen. Anyway, do you have something you want to add to that? Someone needs to strip you of your brain? Well, yeah, I just said something absolutely absurd that politicians need to make or should be making good decisions. What? That's not why they got elected. They got elected for hair or smiles or kissing babies. They excited their constituents. <laughs> yes. People, you know, when we get we get the government and we get the economy that we that we earn. Now, it's an interesting point. You talked to John talked about the the long-term growth, five-year plans, and so on. 
The Soviet Union had a series of five-year plans, too, and it fell on its face. And it was a grand, considered a grand experiment between the United States where free enterprise generates the length of time that we plan, which generally isn't very long in the stock market. And somehow we came out ahead and they didn't. And I think if you notice this year, uh, and again, I think it's a, it's a grand experiment between China's centralized control of their economy and our very decentralized control of our economy, where we let the chips fall where they will. But I think what you're going to find, and I and we mentioned this in the newsletter, a lot of economists right now in the global the global organizations particularly are suggesting that in 2021, the United States GDP growth will exceed that of China. And the United States will lead the world economy out of this recession. And China will fall into second place for at least the next couple of years. Despite the fact that they have centralized control, despite the fact that they enacted draconian restrictions to halt the spread of the virus, the United States, which is the opposite extreme, we've basically allowed chaos to reign. We've had a higher number of deaths. We've had a higher explosion of the virus than other countries have had. But our economy is coming back like gangbusters because we're so decentralized. We're so free. And there's a lot to be said. It's an experiment. It's just, it's a test. Will Chinese... Well, the Chinese win because they have very centralized dictatorial control over their economy and over their people. And when somebody gets too big, they become the equivalent of Microsoft or Amazon. They suddenly get shut down by the government, which is what's happened over there with Jack Ma. Or will our system work where we allow people to, generally speaking, do whatever they want to do as long as it's within the law and we don't have the, the situation where if the president gets offended, he shuts down a company? At least we hopefully we don't have that. Yeah, I hope not. That's that's the idea behind having property rights. Five year plans. That's two basic philosophies. And the Chinese have a hundred year plan. They have five year plans. Whether or not they'll come to fruition is questionable. Then nobody has ever been able to in effect to put into effect a long term economic plan for centralized control of a economy and make it work. We'll see how well this works with China. It's, it's, it's ongoing, whether free enterprise or centralized control works better. We'll see. Yeah, and I, and I have a, a theory on this that is, uh, you've quoted it in the past. I call it the cattail theory. And you can see times in the past where a dictatorial government held things steady for a long time. We'll talk about the cattail theory uh, and the cattail theory is a very violent theory, so you, it, there, I'm putting in extra suspense, even though it is an economic theory. And somebody might fall asleep listening to, but it's a very violent. <laughs> if you'd like to join the conversation, we've got email addresses waiting for you at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. That's Tango Papa, Whiskey Charlie, or the personal wealth coach. And we'll be back on the other side of these very important messages. And we're back with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure. And on the line with me, I have... Jeff McClure. And uh, we are... Coming live today, if today is March 13th of 2021, from the radio studio being piped in from our homes in Salado. 
So it all comes together into the studio and then spreads out again across the airwaves. Uh, but before the break, I said I was going to talk about this wildly fabulous uh, economic theory of mine, which I developed when talking about and studying the Roman Empire. Uh, and that is that uh, the, the cattail theory. Any time you have a governmental entity that clamps down on volatility too hard, what's volatility? Bumpiness. When they release, there's pent-up volatility. So why do I call it the cattail theory? Well, it has nothing to do with tails of a... Of a a standard deviation curve or anything exciting like that it is much more exciting. The internet loves it. It's about cats. Um, if you have a cat, if you've ever been around a cat and the cat's sitting next to you and its tail is flicking, sometimes people get annoyed by this flicking tail. So they look down at the cat, the cat looks up at them, and maybe the cat tail flicks a little bit more due to the interaction with the eye contact and all that good stuff. Well, you as the governing body of this cat, Um, which the cat may or may not agree to be the case, can reach down and gently take the tip of the cat's tail in your hand to subdue the volatility. Now you have the tail in your hand. It doesn't look like the cat's even that upset about it. It's just sitting there in the same position. It may look away a little bit. And you can hold that tail for quite some time. But what happens to the tail when you release it? And that is the whole point here is that the lashing tail goes all over the place. And the Chinese are in this category. They are clamping down on a lot of creativity, a lot of creative volatility, a lot of innovation. Their long-term plan is to be the most innovative in the world. You can't be the most innovative in the world if you clamp down on innovation because it's volatile. It changes your culture. So the long-term Chinese plan, I think, has, is more dangerous than the short-term American plan because I think there are enough people in America that are also doing long-term planning where in China, the culture is set from the top and they say, this is the type of planning we do. Oh, no, it isn't anymore because the person in charge no longer agrees with that. And you mentioned Jack Ma, the ant group. They were getting into the private banking area. The government in China owns the banking system. So when you have private banking in a actual for-profit enterprise that's not governmental controlled, they have less control over the money flow. And Jack Ma was getting to the point where he was a extreme competitor for the money supply against the government. And then his comments that knocked him out of the ball game at a conference were that the Chinese banking system regulations were backwards and that they needed to be improved if it didn't want to stifle innovation. Now, I have to say some other things here. I don't believe that Jack Ma is an intensely intelligent person. Anybody that listens to any interview with him will be shocked if they think that you have to be brilliant to be a billionaire. Uh, He's he's old, elder Baldy. If you want to get a kick out of life, there are quite a few uh, times when Elon Musk and Jack Ma are being interviewed uh, at the same time. Jack Ma speaks English, where Elon Musk does not speak Mandarin. So he's got kudos 
for the intelligence and learning a completely very foreign language. But his understanding of the fundamentals of what creates profit or uh, what AI is or what the future technologies will be is um, it's worth watching. But anyway, he said some things that the government got upset with and then he disappeared. And then months later, sends out an email saying, no, the government doesn't have me. I'm in my home lying low. But still months later, he comes out, well, maybe the government didn't have him. Maybe the government just said, lie low in your house for a while or you're going to be had by the government. That's like house arrest. If the government doesn't have you, why do you have an ankle monitor? Uh, And that's the point, is that Jack Ma, who is not an incredibly brilliant person, but has done quite well for himself and has created huge enterprise, quite profitable, was shut down, not because he said we should revolt, but because he said maybe we should consider revising some of the regulations that they're backwards and they're going to stifle innovation. And then innovation was stifled to prove him right. I don't think that was his intent. Uh, So the long-term 100-year plan at China, they have some really good pieces to that plan. Whether they can keep to them, I don't know. I wouldn't mind having those pieces in our plan. But they are definitely doing hiccups that lead us to expect bad things in the future for China, demographic being the first one. It's a key element in China's innovation and its growth, if you call it innovation, and its growth in technology and capability. And that is much of what they have supposedly gained, they have taken from U.S. companies. Innovation is still primarily occurring in the United States. As a matter of fact, when it comes to patents, if you look at the number of Chinese names in America that have filed for patents in the United States, it's huge. It's a big chunk of all the patents we've ever filed in the last 10 years. You'll notice that they're not filing for the patents from China, though. They're coming to the United States, becoming residents of the United States, and then inventing things. Because inventing things in China is an extremely dangerous thing. You might threaten the government or the government might take it away from you. Or another company might take it away from you and file a different patent at a different location that somehow supersedes your own because they knew the bureaucrat in charge. The fear we have of China right now taking over and running everything is very similar to the fear we had of Japan taking over and running everything. And Japan did hit a peak where they were buying U.S. landmarks and they had all the money and They had all the exports to the United States, and they were importing next to nothing to the United States, very similar to what's going on in China today. And they fell on their rear ends because a centralized control economy that's xenophenic, meaning afraid of outsiders, is just simply historically not going to work. Now, again, it's an experiment. It's an experiment the Chinese are running to see if centralized control of the economy is going to make for a great economy 100 years from now where they'll overtake the world and basically run the world according to China or whether they'll fall on the rear ends. Historically, the second option is what's going to happen. I wouldn't worry about it too much. Uh, we love to worry about things. We love to fear things. But I think I think China has its limits, and it's going to run into a brick wall at some point. Now, we're almost out of time this hour, but I'm going to give you some teasers about some of the concepts we'll be talking about next hour. Uh, number one, we've gotten a lot of questions on this. What is a consumer-based economy? It doesn't sound healthy. And... Uh, we'll talk about it because the word consumer-based economy, you're right, it doesn't sound healthy. We'll explain what, what it means and why it is actually the best type of economy. And if you think about it as consuming, it doesn't make sense. It's got a bad name. 
Not not that there's rumors about it, but the word itself, consumer-based economy, is a bad name. We'll explain what that means. We'll explain why it is really a, a fantastical form of government, or government, of economy that allows us to subsist when other nations that aren't consumer-based can go into deep recessions or depressions for extended periods of time. Um, but, uh, and that's one, do you have something... Uh, some nice tidbit of information you were going to say next hour? Uh, I think what you just said is something we need to talk about. Yeah. Um, there's there's more we'll talk about what's going on in the oil patch. We'll talk about roads. We'll talk about infrastructure. And we'll talk about a little bit about the fear of inflation, which I don't think is anything to be afraid of. Right. But as of now, we're out of time for our first hour, this uh, March 13th of 2021 if, however, you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually, as an investment firm, as a, a fiduciary firm, we manage portfolios and give investment and business advice to people of high net worth, people that have complicated enough portfolios that they really are feeling the need for the advice. Uh, we help a lot with that. Uh, if you would like to contact us off the air, we have lo- local voicemail on the weekends, real live people during the week at... Two five four nine four seven eleven eleven, or you can get that same line toll free at one eight hundred nine one four seven five two six. That's eight hundred nine fourteen plan. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com, where you've got podcasts and you can contact us directly there. You can find our email addresses on there, or just email Jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Until next hour, this has been the Personal Wealth Coach. Thank you very much for listening.